Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Peter is wanting to communicate some things here. And, and he starts off his, his second letter uh, with a kind of a classic introduction. You know, it's very similar to what he starts off with in, uh, in First Peter, same with uh, a lot of the, the Pauline uh, letters, where he starts off with a common greeting, may grace and peace. You know, those two were kind of always uh, joined together in Scripture. They're mentioned together and, and meant to reflect um, different backgrounds. You know, there's the, the Greek greeting that would be uh, mentioned there with uh, something along the lines of like cheers with, uh, in place of, of grace, but then peace, speaking to the, the Jewish side of things, uh, um, kind of mentioning that, that word shalom there. And so Paul uh, is using a kind of common greeting of the day here. And he says, may, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Now, Peter's desire is for us to experience more grace and more peace in our lives, right? That's kind of the common desire of all people. No one is signing up for like, I want the, you know, the tumultuous life. No one's design, you know, signing up for like, I want the life that's just full of hardship and difficulty. Yes, that's for me. That's not what anyone's signing up for. <clears throat> and everyone is kind of in this chase to have this this peace, and we often try to create our own peace. If you uh, if you run through um, <clears throat> you know the self help section in in Barnes and Noble, or or you have a discussion with uh, you know with anybody uh, who has kind of a background in in life coaching and or things like that, you're often told you know what you need to do is you need to take charge of the situation. You need, to, you need to be the one that's controlling. You need to, you need to be the one that's uh, focused on doing what you need to do for you. And, and that's often like, you know, the, the encouragement that's given to us. We often try to create our own peace by just being in control or, or trying to be in charge of a situation or, or making sure that we have uh, the most amount of, of, of sway or influence in a decision. And, and that... that a lot of times is what we feel will bring us peace. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, everyone has a, a bit of an opinion on, on how you ought to have peace. Uh, you know, you can walk through the grocery store and see on magazine after magazine, it's like, you know, five steps to inner peace or like, you know, uh, find peace in five minutes with like these, these sorts of ways. And, you, you know, you'll, you'll have sorts of, uh, these, these sorts of articles that are written or, or um, things that are shared on Facebook a lot of times, like here's the secret to, to serenity and peace in your life. And, you know, some of the things that, are <clears throat> that they often mention here are, are things like, you know, you, in order to have peace, you need to be true to yourself. Or, or you need to, to cease from committing error. Again, you can recognize that, that you have done it, but then from here on out to have peace, you just know errors from here on out, which error is a nice way to say sin, <laughs> you know, like how they just kind of disguise it there. Um, or, you know, a lot of times it's like the way that, that you should have peace is think of those people who have wronged you. And then you want to, to muster up some sort of compassion for them so that, so that uh, you know, for someone who has hurt you and, and really kind of pity them and feel bad for them. Now, 
the world tells us that these things will, will bring us peace, that, that we need to take charge of the situation. We need to be in control. We need to be the ones who are the, the, the top influencers. We need to be true to ourselves. We need to, uh, we need to not worry about committing errors again, or we need to have, have generate some sort of compassion for others. But the gospel says the exact opposite. And, and that's what, um, what Peter's trying to communicate to us because the gospel says, you know, there's grace and peace together. But grace tells us here is that you, you can't take control of your own situation and that you need help. Grace tells us that, that you, you can't be true to yourself because you're yourself, in, in and of yourself, you are sinful and you're wicked and you can't save yourself. You can't cease from committing error again. It's just not going to happen. We're going to continue to sin. You know, you can't be in control of your own life. And, you know, talk about trying to muster up compassion for others. Uh, that's a completely opposite of the gospel because we don't want to just have compassion for others who have wronged us. We know that Jesus has paid the penalty for their sin. And so we don't need to have compassion. We need to recognize that they have sinned and Jesus already paid the penalty for that. And so we can forgive them because Christ has already uh, paid the price for that. And we can treat them with compassion lovingly because Jesus loves them, not because we pity them. They're not any, uh, you know, we're not any better off than they are. So, so these things where we're trying to create our own peace and create our, uh, you know, this, this uh, situation in our life where we're in control is contrary to the gospel. And this is what the world, you know, has, has told us. We talked about this in Psalm 1 last week, is uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the, of the ungodly or the wicked. And the world's always trying to give us that advice. But here we're coming to the word of God, as Peter tells us, to figure out how to have grace and peace. We're not being swayed by magazine covers or Facebook articles, you know, or no matter how many likes they have or shares they have. We're finding out how God wants us to have grace and peace. So, he, so Peter's desire is for us to have this, this blessing, and he wants it, us to just not only have just grace and, grace and peace, but he wants it to be multiplied. He wants it to, have, to, to come in abundance to us. And so he tells us here how we can, how we can have these blessings multiplied in our lives. <coughs> in verse 1, he tells, or excuse me, verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. So Peter tells us, uh, grace and peace are multiplied, and they flow out of knowledge of Christ. Grace and peace flow out of the knowledge of Christ. So the, the better that we know God, the more we experience his grace and peace in our lives. <clears throat> the more we spend time with God, the more we seek him out, the more we will experience that grace and peace in our lives. We'll experience the grace and peace of God because these things, grace and peace, are God's, a part of God's character. They're a part of his attributes. And so it's no wonder that when you spend time with, uh, you know, God whose character is peace, he's the God of all peace, the God of all comfort, that it's no wonder that you're going to experience those things when you're with that person. And so Peter tells us that we can have, experience this grace and peace through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Now, when he talks about the knowledge of God here, he's not just talking about a mere intellectual knowledge about facts concerning him. He's not saying go out and get, you know, 
uh, a systematic theology and read the section about God and, and say, okay, here's what it says. Here's God's character. Here's what we know about God. And, and uh, you know, he's not, he's not asking us to go out and to have that sort of uh, study of God, but he's giving us a direction here. The word that he uses for knowledge is a one that is, is rooted in experience. It's rooted in, uh, um, you know, intimacy here. It's a heart experience of knowing uh, who God is, that it's gained both through study and looking at the word of God, but then having a personal uh, relationship and an association with God through the word and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. It's a person, uh, you know, a, uh, it's, a, it's an intimate relationship, a, a fellowship that's built upon spending time together and having conversations. <clears throat> I was thinking about this a little bit, and, you know, in, in our day and age, there are, uh, there are these celebrities that, um, you know, we, we kind of follow, and they're well-known, and they do interviews on all sorts of uh, you know, late night TV shows and, and that sort of thing. And w- one such person that um, would be, you know, probably more famous in the, the world that I'm, you know, influenced by is the current CEO of Apple, Tim Cook. And he's the guy who has worked at Apple for forever under Steve Jobs. And, um, you know, he's, he's just like a businessman, pretty much. Like, he, he's a businessman, and, and that's pretty much it. But it's interesting because what happened was uh, a part of a, a recent charity event, Tim Cook, <clears throat> you know, he doesn't spend much time w- with anybody, uh, you know, just re- regular people. He's busy with the company. But he, he put himself up for auction uh, in a recent um, charity event, <clears throat> and you could bid to have a lunch with him. And he actually got the, he got the highest uh, you know, amount out of all the other people who were available for, uh, you know, they were available to, uh, to bid on. And he ended up going for like $610,000 to like go and to have lunch with him. Now, why would anybody do that? You know, obviously there's a, there's a charity element to it where they're, you know, it's like for good cause. But you could go on and you can, you can listen to, on Apple's website, all the archived, you know, uh, footage of the, of the finance calls. You could go and you could watch all the press events where he's talking and sharing. And you could read books about him and his history. You could go to, uh, you know, his university's website where they have like, you know, here's our, here's our famous alumni. And you could read all about his biography and his background. And you could know everything about him, but still not really know who he is. And so the reason that it's valuable to go and have lunch with him is because there's something that you can't get just from from reading all these sources and interviewing all these people. There's a personal knowledge, and someone thought it was worth it to spend, you know, half a million dollars to go and have lunch to be like, okay, what is this person really like? How how do they communicate? What are their interests and passions? And and what are they going to say to me when I talk to them? What is the conversation going to be like? And that's what what Peter's getting at here with us. When, When we spend time with the Lord... We get to see his character, his grace, his peace. It's a conversation that begins. It's not just us coming and, and learning the facts and going through flashcards and learning these things about him, but rather we get to have an experience and have a relationship that we would not have you know, if we had only read the books about God. 
And that's the danger with Christianity a lot of times. We spend time learning about God, but not actually knowing God. You know, it's, it's easy to, to learn things about God, but not ever uh, get to know him. Now, <clears throat> Peter's desire for us is to grow in the Lord, and he wants us to be mature. And, and the progress in our life, <clears throat> in, in our walk with the Lord, is made possible by two things. And this is what Peter tells us about. It's made possible by the power of God and the promises of God. So the first thing there is that we can have this grace and peace through the knowing God. And then he tells us that also we have the benefit of, of uh, having the power of God in our life and the promises of God in our life. And so he's, he picks up back in verse 3 <coughs> to speak to us about knowing this power. Peter tells us in verse 3 that God has given us what we need to grow in maturity, to be sanctified, to, to, have, to live a life of holiness. He picks up in verse 3, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So Peter gives us this secret here. God has given us what we need, you know, to have this life of holiness. And it's important here, he, he gives us to us through this phrase, uh, all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now notice that those two go together. We, we can't just do life and we can't just do spiritual life. You can't just do, you know, go about and live how you want to live. And you can't just go and have, you know, godliness on its own. This is, uh, you know, he, what he's telling us here is we have to figure out how to mix the sacred and the secular together. We can't just compartmentalize our lives and say, okay, you know, the, the world is over here, and we are over here, and we're separated. We're, we're Christians, and so the Christian area is over here, and then when I go out into the world, and then I have to play by their rules, and I act their way, and that's how I fit in with the world. But we have to have, figure out how to mix the sacred and the secular together. And this is what Jesus modeled with us, for us in his incarnation. You know, we've talked about this before, about how Jesus, uh, his incarnation is really a double incarnation. Because he, although he is uh, in flesh completely 100% as a man, he's also 100% God. And so he can be simultaneously in the world, but not of the world. He can simultaneously live a godly life within the world, but not give into the world. And so... Peter tells us we can have this same thing. We can have this promise of, of life and godliness. We can, we can have this for us, for our walks. And God has made provision for us to have this type of life of holiness. He's made a way for that to happen. It starts in verse 3, and he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what does that mean? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Well, it's his divine power that saves us in the first place, right? It's his work upon the cross. It's his action, not our action, but it's his action that saves us in the first place. It's his divine power that saves us to begin with. And here it continues. 
It's his divine power that energizes us to live these holy lives, these sanctified lives from that point on. When, you know, we're told that we are a new creation. The old has passed away. All things have become new. And it's his spirit that empowers us to live out, uh, you know, these godly lives from that point forward. And so it's his divine power that works within us. And this, the power to live this holy life, it comes from, again, a knowledge of him. Look at where he speaks in verse 3. He's granted us this divine power uh, to all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then coming back again. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So we're empowered to live these lives of holiness, but not on our own. Peter tells us that this comes through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And so the way that we have this divine power is, again, through knowing God. Knowing God. Uh, you know, we're, we're told there in, and, and this is, again, speaking out of the idea of salvation. You know, what, what does uh, John 17 tell us about what it means to know God? Uh, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer there, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So that divine power that saves us, that divine power of knowing God and having eternal life, it's the same power that enables us and gives us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. So knowing God is the key to having, you know, uh, to recognizing that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Well, there, there's these directions, these uh, uh, principles that we're going to look at in the coming weeks that will speak to this. His, the, the way that we know God is through his word. The way that we know who God is and, and what he is, has planned for us and commanded us to do, we find in his word. He speaks to us through scripture. And so everything that we need for life and godliness is found within the pages of Scripture. The complete manual for how we ought to live in the sacred and secular is found within the pages of the Bible. And so as we uh, approach this new series in the coming weeks, as we look at uh, practical topics, we're going to look at how do, we, how do we do life and godliness in this present age? What does it look like? What does the Bible say about you know, all the topics that we've talked about uh, before, all the topics that we've mentioned. What, is the, what does it look like? How does the, what does the Bible tell us about how to live in the sacred and secular? How does the Bible tell us that we ought to apply uh, these godly principles to our lives? So we have this knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, I want you to notice here what he says. He's called us to his own glory and excellence. There's a standard, right? And our standard is not his glory and excellence. Our standard is our glory and our own excellence. The way that, the way that we interact with uh, life and godliness a lot of times is like, eh, it seems good to us. Seems like, uh, seems like this should do it. Seems like this is farther than I would have gone normally. That's kind of the way that we, the, that we deal with... Um, you know, excellence a lot of times. We, we, we renegotiate our levels of excellence 
after, you know, we start working on something and thinking through something. But once it gets a little bit difficult, then it's like, well, maybe we don't need to go that far. Maybe we don't need to put in that much work. We, we settle. We'll break our own kind of promises to ourselves about what we should be doing. So we're not called to our own glory and excellence, but he's called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, that's going to play a key. We'll look at uh, in, in this next portion. We'll look at that in a moment. <clears throat> the third portion here that we find in verse 4 is that we're given some confidence in that we can trust God's promises as partakers of the divine nature. Verse 4. Peter goes on. Peter goes on to write. Um, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So he starts off with verse 4 by saying, he's granted to us his precious and very great promises. So we have promises that are precious and they're very great. They're described. So what are they? What are these promises here? Well, really, there are any promises God makes, ever. (laughs) Uh, But it refers to any promises that we find in the Word of God. It's estimated that uh, in in the Bible there, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of promises in Scripture that we find uh, in the Word of God. Now, uh, I I was I was. doing a little bit of research to give you a list, but someone had nicely compiled a great list for me. So I thought I would share just a couple with you. But here are some of the things that are promised to us uh, that relate to a, a life of holiness. And these are promises that are ours uh, in uh, it, that we are given uh, in Scripture. First one, freedom from sin's dominion. In Romans 6.14, it says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. That's a great promise. Uh, we're, we're told in 2 Corinthians 12.9, uh, in Jesus' words, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Uh, the, uh, we're told that we have the power to obey his commands, you know, to live uh, a righteous life to live with that singular focus to know him we looked at this uh, just you know a month ago in Philippians 4:13 through the promise uh, uh, that Paul s- states there I can do all things through him who strengthens me uh, we're told in, in uh, James 4:7 that we can have victory over Satan he says submit yourselves therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee from you uh, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that we have an escape when we are tempted. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We're told that we will have forgiveness when we confess sins in 1 John 1, 9. 
If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're told that he will uh, forget our sin in Jeremiah 31, 34. He, uh, the Lord says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In uh, Psalm 50, verse 15, uh, we're told that he will respond when we call upon his name. Uh, it says, and call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So we have these promises all throughout Scripture. They're great and precious. Uh, the, you know, I love how it's described as very great. You can, you can think, uh, think about what those words mean. I was, I was reading into uh, a little bit of Spurgeon's description of these things, and, and he, sa- he says that, you know, uh, the promises and the way that Peter contrasts them is so interesting because oftentimes when we think of something that is precious— we think of something that is quite small and dainty and something that you would want to protect. But when we think of something that's very great, we think of something that is majestic and quite large, but rarely do those things go together, something that's quite large and is also precious. But that's how these promises are described. They are very great and precious. So what's the point of these promises? Why do we have these promises? Well, Peter tells us in verse 4 here, so that they, uh, through them, through these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So these promises are here to enable the believer to escape the corruption that's in the world, to escape sin that's in the world. So if Scripture has given us everything that we need for life and godliness— then these promises are here so that way when we face temptation, we can go to 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and say, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And you can resist that sin. You can go to uh, you know, uh, J- uh, Philippians 4, 13 and say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. These promises are here so that way we part- are, become partakers of the divine nature. It doesn't mean that we uh, become like God, but bec- uh, in that we are gaining deity, but rather we are manifesting his character and his attributes in our lives. We're learning what it means to live as Christians, to live lives of holiness. And these promises are ways, are, you know, they're kind of like milestones that guide us through. They're things that we can reference. And they uh, protect us from corruption because, that's in the world because of sinful desire. When we face difficulty, when we face temptation, we can claim these promises that are in Scripture. Now, we have them there, but how can we trust the promises of God? And I like how Peter has connected this. How can we trust them? We know what they're there for. We know that they're given to us, but how can we trust the promises of God? Well, look at the end of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4 again. At the end of verse 3, we're told that this... uh, let me scroll up there. Uh, at, the, at the end of verse 3, we're told that God's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. To his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Or put another way. Let me explain. Let me uh, break it down for you another way. 
mashing those two together, it says this, by his own glory and excellence, by his own glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. That's what what Peter's saying there in verse 3 and 4. By his own glory and excellence, he has granted to us his own, or his uh, precious and very great promises. What this means is that the promises of God are trustworthy because they're based upon his glory and his excellence. And we can totally count on them because God is not going to compromise his glory or his excellence. His character and his nature is perfect. His virtue and his love are perfect. And so he will not compromise that. His promises are perfect because his character is perfect. He has based them upon himself, who he is. Psalm 138 verse 2 says, You have magnified your word above your name. God honors his word even above his name. And so we don't have to have any uh, sort of concern. We don't have to face any sort of doubt regarding the promises of God because he has valued his word above his own name. And so these promises are given to us so that we might know him. We have the word of God so that we might know how to live and have life and everything that we need for life and godliness. These things are, are built into the scripture so that way we might know the God of grace and peace. Now, last week we looked at Psalm 1. And we'll end here with this. We're told in Psalm 1 that the way that you're to be blessed is through study of the Word of God. And as we said this morning, uh, study of the Word of God is the way to know God because He has revealed Himself to us in Scripture. And we have the promises of God contained in Scripture, which are precious and very great. And we have in Scripture uh, everything that we need for life and godliness. And so we can come to Scripture and trust it because it's based upon God's excellence and his glory, upon his virtue, upon his character. And Psalm 1, as we looked at last week, tells us that the man who is blessed, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And we said last week that, you know, to meditate there is, is to put, your, put Scripture in your mind uh, and to think upon it in a way that it, until it moves you to action and, and you've savored it and it becomes uh, a part of, uh, you know, you experience the power of it within your heart. You're affected by it. You're challenged and changed and transformed. And so that's what we want to do with Scripture, uh, you know, especially as we come into this, uh, this kind of new series of looking at these different topics. We want to figure out what does the Bible say and, and how should we ought to live and, and consider these things together and have conversation together. And so the way that we know God is through his word. And so we want to study it. We want to meditate on it day and night as the psalmist did. The second way that we've done this is to, uh, that we're working on this, is to embark upon this scripture memory, uh, you know, plan together. A lot of churches have done the, have done the uh, Bible reading plan, which is awesome, but we're doing the scripture memory plan together. We're, we're uh, embarking upon uh, a year's journey of learning 52 verses uh, together that we might have, or 52 passages, um, to protect ourselves. 
In Psalm 119, verse 11, the psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We're learning the scripture together. We're, we're spending time focused upon it because it protects us from sin. So that way we have the promises of God within our heart. <coughs> and one of, the, one of the promises that we looked at was, uh, you know, uh, James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So how are you going to resist the devil? How are you going to, what does that look like? How do you resist the devil and he will flee from you? Well, how, how, did, uh, how did Jesus, scripture, right? When the devil came and, and Satan was trying to tempt him and, and give him all of these things. And, you know, we have in the, in the passage there in uh, Matthew 4, verse 3, Satan comes and says to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You know, Jesus is there starving in the wilderness, and, you know, he's been there fasting for 40 days and preparing for uh, his earthly ministry. And Jesus, you know, he responds back. But, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He resisted uh, Satan through scripture. He had this word within his heart. So when Satan came on the scene and, you know, saw Jesus in that moment of weakness, being out there in the desert, you know, with nothing around, there's no, you know, fast food or anything. He's out there just hanging out by himself. It's dry. And he's like, you're looking pretty hungry, Jesus. And he's like, you know, kind of coming up to him like all sneaky-like. And it's like, you know, Jesus, picture this. Bread, fresh, hot, like out of the oven. Like, just, you know, kind of say the word. You can do this. Command it. And make it happen. He's like, you know, Satan's just, uh, you know, painting like this picture. I, you know, I imagine it was like a, a lot more tempting than just like, do this, <laughs> you know. And he's, you know, Satan's like, come here, Jesus, picture this. You know, here's this thing and, and yeah, here's my whole setup and it's going to be mouth-watering. Picture that. And Jesus is like, all right, scripture, boom. You know, Satan's like, picture that. Jesus is like, scripture that, boom. Dropping it right on him. Here it is. So if we're going to resist the devil, we have to be armed just like Jesus was armed. Scripture memory. Uh, and then the, the kind of the third way that we're going to embark upon is this topical series. We're going to, uh, you know, start this discussion looking at, in Scripture, everything that we need for life and godliness. How do we do this together? How do we, do, how do we uh, live out the sacred and the secular together? What are the topics that we want to discuss and, and navigate together? How, how, what does that look like to apply the word of God in our lives daily and to, to um, navigate these difficult situations in life? And so uh, those are the things that, that we want to embark upon as we uh, consider scripture. And so the, the idea that, that Peter is telling us here is that the most important thing is that we know God and we know him through his word. And the byproduct of knowing God is grace and peace, not just that by itself, but grace and peace multiplied in abundance. Everything that we need for life and godliness through knowing him. We're told that we have these great and precious promises. We become more like him, become sanctified through becoming partakers of that divine nature. And we escape corruption that exists in the world because of sinful desire. And so we want to see godly desire and godly uh, 
you know, godly ambition in Scripture and see what God is doing and join him in that. Those are all things that we'll discover as we, as we look into the Word of God together. And so that's something that, um, you know, I'm excited about and we want to ask the Lord to, to guide us in as we try to navigate these tricky subjects. And we want to view them through the lens of what Scripture has to say, not what our upbringings or our, you know, uh, spiritual backgrounds or any of those things, we want to view them uh, as as closely as we uh, as we can through what the Bible says and wrestle with them and and have great um, godly conversation around uh, these different topics. And so I'm looking forward to it. Uh, let's pray together and uh, ask the Lord uh, to work within us. Lord, we're so thankful for uh, opportunity. <coughs> To worship you this morning um, through song, through the study of your word. Lord, and as you've given us um, everything that we need for life and godliness, Lord, we don't need to, um, to discover, you know, wisdom that the world thinks it has through magazine covers and websites and blogs and, you know, uh, just the various ways that people tell us uh, that we should live, Lord, but we know that you've given us everything that we need, and we can have that through the knowledge of Christ. And so we want to not only have uh, just book knowledge, Lord, but we want to have this experiential knowledge. We want to have an, an intimate knowledge uh, of you, and we want to have that not just um, individually, but as a community. We want to be able to, to have you lead us as a church and as uh, the body of Christ. And so Lord, we're so thankful for um, your word and that you've given it to us so that way we're not lost and we don't have to uh, wonder how we should live godly lives in, in, uh, um, in this world, but that you've given us direction that is clear and um, that is built upon your character. <coughs> Lord, we're thankful that the promises in your word that you've given us are built upon uh, your excellence and your glory and not upon ours, because we would renegotiate, Lord, our promises. We would renegotiate those things that we would declare to be very great and precious, Lord, but you stand by, and you are faithful. So we're thankful for, um, for your faithfulness to us. Lord, we pray that you would be uh, glorified um, in your people. We love you. Amen. <clears throat>